You know what the most dangerous thing in America is, right? Nigga with a library card. <laughs> This is the Most Dangerous Thing in America podcast, a show in which we read books by black authors and they're talked about by a black author. And you can listen if you're black or not black. Welcome to 2022, first episode of 2022. We are doing a nonfiction book to kick off the year. It is a work of philosophy by the late Professor Emmanuel Ezi, the Nigerian scholar and philosopher. So this is a heavy book. So we're splitting it into three podcasts, and on this one we're going to discuss the beginning and stuff, and actually I don't want to get to that first. So let me hop in and say how I came to the book, then I'll talk about what we're talking about, okay? I want to say up front, though, that this is not like a lecture series, all right? This is just me talking about the book, what it's about, and what I like about it. Disclaimer, I am not a professor, nor am I a professional philosopher. Okay, uh, how did I come to this book? A couple months ago, I read African Intellectuals Rethinking Politics, Language, Gender, and Development. That was an anthology put out by Codesria. And Professor Ezzy was mentioned in passing on a, a, an essay by the Kenyan writer uh, Gujiwa Tiango, Professor Gujiwa Tiango. And I just must have glommed onto that and Googled it and found the book and and yeah, there it was. So I've read now the first 90 pages and that is just the preface, introduction, and part one. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And then on part two of the podcast, we'll discuss chapters two and three. And then on part three of the podcast, chapters four and five. But yeah, this was over one third of the book is just the preface introduction part one. So we're going to try to get as much covered as we can today. And we're going to try to do it in as short amount of time as possible. I like to keep these podcasts around 30 minutes. So I don't want to take up too much time. Because like I said, I mean, you can read the book and find out what it's about. That's not what this is for. This is just like your buddy discussing the book with you. You know what you, you, know what you love to do is read a book of philosophy and then sit around with your buddy and discuss it. I mean, that's what we all like doing. Okay. Let's get to the preface. So in the preface, he really lays out exactly what this book is going to be about. So I'm just going to read the first paragraph because I think it kind of tells us everything we need to know. My intention in this book is quite modest. I would like to provide some descriptions and arguments in support of various conceptions of the nature of reason. Displaying a variety of viewpoints is necessary because whatever anyone may think of it, what we mean when we refer to a person as being rational in general or having a reason for doing or believing something in particular is not only complex, but also in more than the surface features, elusive, enigmatic, and mysterious. The process of reasoning, like all processes of reflection or modes of consciousness, are not neatly laid out in a linear and determined way as if the processes were highways or railroad tracks. So that's really all what this book is about. It's about the idea that essentially there are, for any mode of consciousness or any type of reason or rationality that we've come up with, none of them are actually descriptive of how 
rationality works or what we mean when we say somebody is rational. Uh, he also quotes, he uses an African idiom here. I don't know from which language he doesn't say, but he has the translation. And he says, rationality, like a work of art, is best appreciated from multiple points of view. So that's another idea that he's getting at in this preface. You know, he's going to present a lot of different types of rationality or reason, if you will. And then he's going to take the best parts from each. He's going to critique other parts. And at the end of it, we're going to have uh, a model of what it is, you know, a rational human is. Because that's ultimately the goal is to say, here's what rationality actually is. It is multiple types of reason combined. And that's not just what, it's not that like people over here use this type of reason and people over here use that type of reason. That may be true. The bigger idea is that everybody uses a collection of the different types of reason to be rational. The other big idea that he talks about here in the preface is vernacular rationality. And vernacular rationality here refers to everything that affects reason aside from biology. So he points out that biology undergirds all of the other various factors which contribute to rationality. These are language, society, tradition, and history. And this term vernacular rationality is his own. So this is his, his idea is that you can have a, uh, a model of rationality based on those different factors that I just said, language, society, tradition, and history, undergirded by biology. Uh, another term he uses in the book is potentiate. Potentiate. Biology potentiates our ability to rationalize, but it is not the number one factor at all. All right, so then we set off on our mission to critique rationality in order to determine its contours, right? And that's that's the mission he sets up for us in the preface. So I think that, that more or less summarizes what the book's going to be about. So I'm not going to like continually summarize what's happening, but I might here or there. And now I'm going to try to talk more about just like what I find interesting as we go through the section. So in the introduction, after the preface, he defines five terms, identity, diversity, individuality, uh, universality, and autonomy of the world. Now I'm going to only talk about two of them, the two that I find interesting. The first one is diversity. And he makes a big point of here saying what he's talking about is diversity of thought. That's the goal. He doesn't want anybody to think he's writing about diversity as it might be discussed uh, in the culture wars or in the popular literature or in whatever, you know, this book was written in 2008, but the, the same way diversity is talked about negatively is the same way that he doesn't want it to be talked about when he brings it up here. He only does that, I believe, so that it won't detract from his argument. His argument, once he makes it and lays it out, can still be used by people who are pro-diversity, but the way he's using it in this book is not that way, if that makes sense. Because I think at the, in the diversity section, I don't think, in the diversity section, he lays out the fact that, like, you know, he's on the side of the people who are overall pro-diversity. But when he's using diversity in this book, it will not be used in that way. And the reason is because this is a rigorous examination of reason and rationality. And, you know, he's holding himself to a standard so that nobody will dismiss this book as some kind of 
uh, tool of the culture war. Right. So I think that's why he includes that in the in the introduction. Is it necessary for him to do that? I don't know if it was necessary. I think it was good because then the book can be used in any context. It has it, it, it can be used in broader context. The scope of the book is not just about what's happening at the moment. The scope of the book is about how we use reason in general. And he also in the introduction gives you a roadmap for if you wanted to use this to advance arguments that are being made, being made in the moment, in the culture, you can also do that. So actually, maybe not necessary, but I'll say good, okay? All right, the second interesting part of this was the part, I mean, there's many interesting parts, but the part that really spoke to me was I read Fred Moten's In the Break a couple of months ago and did podcasts about it, and he had this whole idea about the break, the gap, the originary unit, the moment before the moment, this kind of ineffable, this ineffable thing. And that was what Moten was saying was the black aesthetic. That That's where the black aesthetic comes from. In this break gap moment that can't be described or really nailed down. And here, as he is talking about, so the, similarly, he uses the word breach. He also uses the word, the phrase, gap in thought, to describe the moment when there is a generative moment where we become rational, basically, where we use rational reason to paper over these gaps in thought, and the the, the material paping over, taping over those gaps in thought is thought which leads to tongue which leads to speech which leads to voice which leads to language so let me read a little bit of what he writes here he says for us analysis of language any language in relation to ordinary experience indicate what you could call a gap in thought a breach in tongue this breach indicates not some inherent ignorance of ordinary minds compared to the metaphysical insights of professional philosophers rather it points to a general distance between thought and mind a few sentences later, this is a productive gap. It is a generative absence, absolutely necessary for the autonomous emergence of thought. A few sentences later, obviously an absence is not a thing. It is a gap. Thought, that which composes itself because of nothing and so to speak out of nothing, as a need. The need of tongue, the need for speech, the need for voice, da 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 Thought is the need for language. So not only did this remind me of Moten, it also reminded me of Daniel Dennett, who's a philosopher and professor, and he wrote a book called Consciousness Explained. He also wrote a book called Brainstorms, which as he uh, actually references in this in this work, but I don't have Brainstorms. I have Consciousness Explained. I'm going to slap the table with the book so you know it's you can tell when it hits the table that it's that book. You can hear which book is which book, right? So hold on a second. Here we go. Right? You can hear that's consciousness explained. Okay, anyway, in that book, Dennett talks about the idea that language is the thing that is consciousness. Like, without language, we wouldn't have consciousness. Uh, I read the book about a year ago, maybe two years ago. And uh, I, I didn't, I don't know if I understood the concepts as well until I was reading Ezzy today uh, and yesterday and this week when I was reading Ezzy. I was like, oh, these Dennett concepts are starting to make sense. But anyway, I bring all that up to say, this is an idea, this idea of thought, language, and there being a gap between these two things, or excuse me, a gap between 
what what you're thinking and what's in the mind if the mind's a physical place or whatever there being some kind of gap is something that Moten talked about with regard to aesthetics it's something that Ezzy is talking about with regard to reason and rationality and it's something that Dennett was talking about here with regard to consciousness so I just thought that was kind of cool um, kind of connected a few things I was reading and then that is a nice segue a very nice segue into universality which really is not what I was just talking about, but just, you know, that it happened to be that those three guys were talking about the same thing. So that's kind of like a universality, but that's not what, uh, as is talking about, he's not talking about the idea of you reading something and they all happen to, uh, to come from the same place. Anyway. So in this section, as he talks about how reason and rationality rise from practicality and he anticipates that people are going to quibble with his ideas but he points out this is not really up for debate other people have had these ideas before and he brings up uh instead of calling it practicality you might call it utility that's john Stuart mill you might call it instinct that's dewey you might call it interest by habermas don't know who said don't know who habermas is the democratic by rorty no idea who that is nietzsche uh, called it the aesthetic wittgenstein called it use and foucault called it biopower so this is another Ezzy technique. So one, I want to just point out that this idea, practicality, like his idea about language thought and um, some kind of gap break thing, these, these ideas are there, you know, they're not, um, they're, or excuse me, multiple people have them, which brings me to my second point and Ezzy's kind of whole thesis here, which is that I'm not reinventing the will. What I'm doing is synthesizing the information. I might put a different word on it, right? Like I'm going to use, he uses the phrase vernacular rationality to talk about all of the types of reason, all of the things that affect reason and, and go into rationality, right? So he calls that vernacular rationality, but he's not, that's just a term that he's using and he's building on other information from other people. Similarly here, believing that rationality is born from practicality is not, an original idea necessarily it's just the term he's uh, choosing to use in this work what will be original i think and what i think the introduction and preface get at, and i i wrote this down is that um and maybe this isn't original you know somebody who knows philosophy better would have to tell me but i think as his goal here is to take all of these different reasons and turn this work into like a theosophy of philosophy of reason so that it's not that one particular type of reason is right or one particular type of reason is wrong. It's that each one has a little piece that is useful and strung together. They can be um, a model for how rationality actually works. So I think that's the goal of this book, besides all of the goals that he laid out very clearly. All right, let's get to the types of reasons. So that was all the preface and the introduction, kind of the roadmap for what's going to happen here. And then he points out in the preface that he is going to describe what happens with uh, any chapter. And then he's going to critique what he just described. And then he's going to justify the critique and like his interpretation of the information. I'm not going to do that here. Instead, <laughs> I mean, you can read the book for that. Instead, I'm just going to talk about the sections of the first chapter. And give some overall, you know, information about what he wrote and then what I thought about. So, the first chapter is the types of reason, as, as he sees it, the type, the like, 
the titans of reason, not the titans, the pillars of Western reason. And he goes through each and talks about the pros and cons, like I said, and then he critiques them and then he uh, justifies taking pieces from them or whatever. And uh, in each section, he comes with the philosopher and says, like, all right, or two, here are the guys that exemplify the type of philosophy that we're discussing, or the type, excuse me, the type of reason that we're discussing. Okay, so I'm going to bracket these a little bit, even though he doesn't. So the first two, I'm bracketing these first two types of reason, all right? The first one is calculative, that is induction, and the second one is formal reason, and that is logic or deduction, okay? So let's talk about calculative first, but just keep in mind that we're bracketing these two. All right, for the calculative, he discusses Hobbes and Francis Bacon, and he says these two guys uh, really exemplify this type of inductive reasoning. And he goes through and talks about how Bacon wanted to drag Europe out of the medieval ages, out of the scholastic approach to knowledge and science. And in order to do that, he talked about how we needed to get away from uh, the four idols and so it's like the idol of the cave, the idol of the marketplace. There's a couple more. And how we needed like rigorous proof of things in order to be rational. Now, the easiest way for me to understand something like this is through math, because I'm a math person. Uh, well, at least I teach it. Okay, and so induction in math is like this. You have a particular case, the number seven, and you want to prove it for the number seven, something is true. So that's easy enough. You put the number seven into the thing you want to prove and boop, it proves. It proves. It's proven. Excuse me. Then for the general case, you say, okay, it was true for seven. So let's assume it's true for this letter representing all numbers, N or X. X a little bit easier to hear across the microphone. So let's, so let's stick with X. We assume it's true for X. If it's true for X and we want to prove it, then let's do this. Let's prove for x plus 1 that it's true. And if it's true for x plus 1, that is the next possible thing in the series. If we prove that it's true for x plus 1, then it's got to be true for x and for all cases. That's the kind of level of proof you need for induction to work in math. So without translating, you know, x into the real world and x plus 1, whatever, just that's the level of mechanical proof that Bacon is after. And so there's obvious pros to this. Like this leads to us not having silly weirdo beliefs in science and math. I would like to read one of these silly weirdo beliefs that actually is not from, it's not from this Ezzy book. It's from this David Foster Wallace book I have here. I'm not going to slap the table with this book. Uh, it's from this David Foster Wallace book I have here, which I read during the summer called Everything and More About Infinity. And in it, he is discussing kind of how we got out of the dark ages of mathematical thought. So I'll just read this little passage from the 16th century in which a German algebraist is talking about irrational numbers. And he says, Since, in proving geometrical figures, when rational numbers fell us, irrational numbers take their place and prove exactly those things which rational numbers could not prove, we are compelled to assert that they truly are numbers. So what he's saying here is that Irrational numbers are not numbers unless they're useful. Then a little bit later, after he talks about how irrational numbers are not numbers, he says, Therefore, just as an infinite number is not a number, so an irrational number is not a true number, but lies hidden in a kind of cloud of infinity. 
See, this kind of nonsensical talk is exactly what Bacon was trying to get rid of, and that's why this is good. No, excuse me, that's why induction is good. It got rid of that kind of junk. That being said, there are cons to it as he goes through it, points out that there's a, one thing, you know, in the in the popular language, say cold logic. Well, actually, I should save that for deduction, but just it can be cold, it can be sterile, and it has gaps. And so he makes a little table of six things. And then he talks about their positive use because of induction, a consequence of it because of induction, and, a, and the abuse that happens because of induction. And I'll just use two of the things in this table, and that is cognition and arts. So for arts, Bacon had no use for them, and so he just thought they were frivolous, and uh, they, when they're abused, um, they're silly. And uh, cognition, which is the would be the best thing that we get out of induction, when it's a positive use of it would be... Uh, Reason, a consequence of that would be rationality, right? If we're using induction and, uh, and uh, practicing cognition. But an abuse of it would be misconception. So th there are misconceptions that could happen if we have um, a purely inductive reasoning. What are those misconceptions? Well, you'll just have to read further. But anyway, that's the point, all right? And then we go into the second one, which is formal reason, which is logic or deduction. And here he talks about Aristotle. That's like the exemplar of this uh, of this type of reason. And what is logic here? It is the formal logic where you know you have sentences like uh, "All men are mortal." Uh, Socrates is a man. Socrates is mortal. Right? These syllogisms uh, and the language of logic in general. If you've taken discrete math or computer science or philosophy course then you know what I'm talking about. If not, you know, the all men are mortal things should work for you. And the reason this differs from induction, this is kind of the thing for me. I was reading this going like, well, I've never, I've never taken a philosophy course. I've taken plenty of math courses, but like, you know, sometimes it's kind of hard to put a finger exactly on what's different about this and different in a way that is necessary to define it as being different from induction. So what's different about this is that Aristotle would say that not all knowledge is demonstrative. There are things that you cannot prove through induction. And so there are also things that are easier to prove using the language of logic. But then there are things that are contingent on observation or mere experience. For instance, opinion, convention, habit, tradition, as he says. And these may not cash out as rational by the inductive method. Right? It's possible they could be, but they might not be. So that's the reason why these exist. Now, I used the term cold logic just a moment ago, and that follows here too. Both of these methods, although they differ, rely on pretty rigorous proof or a type of rigorous logic-based thing or mechanical-based thing in order to say that something is true. I shouldn't say rigorous. What am I trying to say instead? I'm trying to say limiting. You know, so that would be the main problem with these two types. Oh, one last thing on this section before we move on here. There was a point where, as he is talking about how, you know, Wittgenstein proved that you could have a person who holds illogical beliefs, right? They could believe in both P and not P, just not at the same time, right? So it's, you know, P over here and not P over there, but it's not necessarily P and not P. And that's kind of hard to wrap your mind around. And then I was on Twitter and Leonard Pitts Jr. 
the newspaper columnist, was talking about how he's reading a book from Selma to Sorrow by Mary Stanton. And there is a ridiculous anecdote in it that kind of illustrates this idea. So the author, Eddie Harris, whose Southern Odyssey took... This is from the passage of this book here. He tweeted out the photo. The author, Eddie Harris, whose Southern Odyssey took him to Greenwood, Mississippi in the early 1990s, described a conversation he had with a white woman whose mother belonged to a segregated church in the 1960s. When the older woman was asked, wouldn't Jesus have let those black people into his church? She answered, of course he would have, but Jesus would have been wrong. Folks, if that's not P and not P, then I don't know what P and not P can possibly be. To believe that Jesus is omniscient, omnipresent, and your Lord and Savior, and also believe that he could be wrong is amazing. All right, so I'm going to try to speed up a little bit here and not dwell too much on explaining stuff here because we can always look up definitions. Just going to try to hit on things I think are interesting. But just as a primer, so I bracketed those first two. The next three tries to branch out from things being logically proved. So part of the problem with the formal logic is that you have to keep going back with infinite regress and proving things. That's why Aristotle just said, nah, some things are just true. So, as he po poses this question at the end, and he says we'll be in a position to answer it after we go through the next sections, he says, If the rationality of grounds of de demonstrated conditions of logical truth cannot themselves be logically directly demonstrated, can the same grounds be indirectly elaborated? And so he's going to do that using uh, hermeneutics, uh, phenomenology, and empiricism. Or he's going to at least discuss how those things can be indirectly elaborated without using the constrained proof that we were using before. All right, so he starts with hermeneutical reason. And in order to, so hermeneutics is the idea of interpreting something, uh, especially like biblical texts and stuff. But here it's not about the Bible. Okay, so it's just interpreting information that we have. And he uses a really good analogy about houses. And I want to make more than one point about this. So I'm going to read it. Okay, suppose I know that Mr. Ugwu lives at number two Asorok Street, but I do not know anyone else who lives on the same street. However, I learn that Mr. Equibi will hand deliver a letter to Mr. Usman, whose address happens to be number 10 Asorok Street. And then he goes on to discuss how, by interpreting certain pieces of information, what you know of streets, house placements, numbers, etc., uh, how you can figure out you know, where that house is in location to the person who, you know, Mr. Ugu, who lives on that street. So that, you know, whatever explains hermeneutics, more or less, whatever, you know, again, this is not, not philosophy corner. The part that I like about this, the part that I want to discuss about this is the fact that he uses African names and he does so casually, you know, but I don't know. I think it's always the, the go-to is to say John and Jack or Joan and Jill, or John and Jill, or Jack and Joan. And instead, he's using uh, Mr. Ugu and uh, Mr. Usman. So, I don't know. I like that. thought that was cool. Uh, okay, so anyway, he goes through hermeneutics and talks about it. And the housing analogy really gets us, uh, gets us there. And he also talks about how... He references the book What Computers Still Can't Do, which is also referenced in this Dennett book that I talked about earlier. And so it's just like the... The things that logic can't get at. And then he also critiques hermeneutics, but I can't exactly remember what it was. And, you know, if it's not in my notes, I must have not thought it was that interesting, right? 
Okay, then he moves on to empirical reason. And I like this because I love critiques of probability and probability falls under empiricism. And the reason I love critiques of probability is because so much of what we do in the world is based off of probability. Uh, in sports, I'm a big sports fan, tons of what we do is based off of probability there. Somehow politics has become a thing about probability. I'm not really sure why that should matter. Like, I understand why polling is important for people who are trying to win but if you're just a person who cares about something you should vote regardless of whether or not you know it seems like your team your quote-unquote team is going to win uh and then there's the money thing of course everybody knows that um investments and whatnot is just uh based on numbers and probability and, and what have you and none of this stuff really actually matters you know they're all just different types of games that we made up and that's why we're able to describe them with probability. Now, that is a oversimplification, and yet I'm happy with it. So, at any rate, um, the idea of empiricism from a broader sense, without my probability rant, is just the idea that everything can be based off of experience, right? Uh, and, and so he uses Hume here, the Scottish philosopher, to discuss this, and uh, he also likes a lot of what Hume has to say. He, he even says that he's kind of indebted to, um, not indebted to, but he's just going to borrow a lot from what Hume has to say. But then he goes through and, and, and offers a critique. I am not going to go through and discuss the critique any more than I already did, except I wanted to use this, this story that they use. I just liked the passage and I liked, I'd never thought about it this way. And I think it addresses both uh, probability and empiricism. It's kind of a little a good nexus for the math-brained and the philosophical-brained. I'm 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 not philosophically-brained, so this helped me out. So he's referencing the work of as he's referencing the work of Boven and Hartman, and they use the passage in the Bible about Jacob and Esau. Esau. I don't know. It's been a long time since I've said that. And so Isaac is an old man, and Jacob is going to go steal Esau's blessing. And then um, in order to do so, you know, he knows he's going to get touched by Isaiah. So he's like, uh, or excuse me, he's going to get touched by Isaac, his father, to, to get blessed. And Rebecca, who's uh, Jacob's mother, she's like, He'll find you out. You can't just go in there. So put on like some goat skin or whatever. So anyway, he goes in. Isaac smells him and he's like, eh, he kind of smells like him or whatever. But when he touches him and he sees that um, he feels like he saw, he's like, oh, yeah, okay, for sure. This is this is him. And then he gives him his blessing and Jacob sells the blessing. But the point is, is that he needed those two pieces of information in order to, to conclude that uh, Jacob was Esau. And I really feel like I used to say the word Esau way more, I guess, when I went to, when I still was going to church. And now I don't, and so I have no idea how to pronounce it correctly. Great, 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 great. Anyway, the point is, is that this shows you that, like, okay, one, we, we use experience to, like, move through the world and know things, okay? But two, he was wrong. So from Isaac's point of view, this didn't work. So this is, you know, in a way, it highlights the failure of probability or uh, empirical thought and um, yeah I thought that was a really nice and tidy uh, anecdote that Boven and Hartman used and that as he passed on to us so that was nice 
All right, the next one is phenomena, phenomenological reason and then a critique of transcendental reason. So these are actually two sections. And I think that we get two sections here because uh, so much of modern philosophy, I'm guessing, has come to be dominated by phenomenology. And that would be because of Husserl. I feel like Ezzy is so opposed to Husserl because there's a clear link between Husserl and Descartes. And there have been many critiques, post-colonial, post-modern critiques, written of Descartes and Cartesianism. And the fact that Husserl has a link to him, I think, is what makes Ezzy want to debate him so thoroughly, which is why he devotes an entire section to a critique of transcendental reason. He didn't do that with anybody else. So he does the whole uh, phenomenology section, and then that branches into the transcendental section using that, not in the way of like the mystical version of transcendentalism. And he offers an entire critique of it. And so, yeah, that's, that's what I suspect is happening here. He feels like um, phenomenology is linked to this outdated philosophy that has been critiqued to use the phrase again, ad infinitum, for, uh, for the last 60 years. But so what is phenomenology? Well, the important part, and the other reason why I think Ezzy probably doesn't like it, is that it's almost the antithesis of what he's trying to do here. In order to practice phenomenology, you have to practice reduction. So in order to practice reduction, the, the word that Husserl uses for reduction is epoche. It's a Greek word. But so the idea is that you, perception is intentional, right? Ego, that's the, the subject, I mean us, a person. And then there's an object, okay? And then so what you do is you take that object and you, or the thema, and you bracket it. And you put it over there and you strip away everything except just what the object is right so it's this isolated object now and then from there uh, you perform some quality control to make sure that you haven't screwed up in the first uh, three things so yeah so you intentionally perceive a thing and then you methodically bracket it and then you reconstruct what it is you or i guess you know discover what it is and so yeah it's stripping away all of these extraneous things to get to the the actual truth of what a thing is and that um this can be achieved subjectively is the part that i thought was weird so you reduce everything down to like a pure subjectivity and then you kind of figure out what it is, and then somehow this is supposed to legitimize it objectively. I, I thought that was strange. But anyway, Ezzy definitely is not down for it. And uh, yeah, I think it specifically chaps his hide because this reductive technique is really the exact opposite of diversity. 
So yeah. So I so I reckon that's uh that's the reason for that section. Okay. And then I mean, you know, as far as if you want to know more about phenomenology, there's there's plenty of reading to do. But yeah, so the Husserl thing and that idea of reduction was interesting, but I just didn't whatever, without being a professional philosopher, it doesn't seem reasonable to me for that to be a way that we could accurately describe the world around us that the mind is a flawed thing i don't know how i could strip something down to any you know fundamental part and believe that i'm doing it accurately just strikes me as off but okay the last reason is ordinary reason and we have a couple passages here to talk about this so here we go. This is how we close out this chapter, and I think it pretty much sums up what we're saying here. Or excuse me, what Ezzy's saying, not what, not what we're saying. A determination of the ordinary grounds of rationality can therefore hardly be achieved without taking into account the self-constituting power of the mind in relations to its factual representations of the world. So this whole section he goes through about, uh, he talks about internalists and externalists and how uh, the internalists, Descartes and uh, Armand there, Husserl, they believe that you can figure out everything by talking about what's uh, inside, what's occurring inside. And then you have these externalists who are saying that um, everything can be explained by, you know, objective nature or these objective forces acting on you. And then... Obviously, what Ezzy is trying to say is that, and then what Ezzy is trying to say is that, um, as he goes through this chapter, is that you have to do both. A vernacular conception of rationality must therefore present itself as empirically ordinary rather than absolutely speculative or speculatively transcendental. He wants a combination. He's trying to synthesize the two things. So, so that's the idea. Alright, that was a long one, but there was a lot of information. And then, um, I haven't really, I mean, I talked about different things I thought were interesting, but just my overall impressions, I, maybe this is just every book I read, but I feel like I'm already swayed by the, I was swayed by the introduction. I mean, the idea of like, yeah, multiple viewpoints that rational thinking can't be defined one way makes sense. Then when you go through and you're presented with six or seven ideas that you hear all the time, right? Like all of those terms we hear all the time, logic and induction and phenomenology and empiricism. And uh, you, uh, you hear these all the time and they all have valid parts of them. It only makes sense that each one has a little truth behind it. So I don't, I'm already swayed by the argument. I'm interested to see how it goes from here. And uh, that'll be cool. And then as far as like the writing style goes, it's really, really accessible for something that's obviously very dense. Unlike like the Moten, which I read a couple months ago, you know, you can read this without having to go through and then read a hundred other sourced things. Like when Ezzy sources something, he sources it well, he explains it well, it's very clear. And then also... I just happen to have like a better 
understanding of some of this stuff because uh, it's logic based and that's you know at least a little bit related to math so that helps but i do i do think in general the writing style is just much more straightforward it's no less scholarly for that reason it's just easier to to take in all right this podcast is already too long so we're going to stop there Going to be back in two weeks with part two of this and try to make it shorter, but we'll see if we can. It's just a long thing. And then in between that podcast and this next one, there'll be a bonus episode. Not going to say what it is, but there will be one. So yeah, either see you here in two weeks to continue talking about On Reason by Professor Emanuel Ezzi, or see you in a week for the bonus episode. Until then... Stay safe, stay black, and keep reading.